This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Hello, traders, and happy Halloween. Welcome to the Limit Up podcast, sponsored and more or less created by Top Step Trader. I'm Jack Pelzer, once again here to, well, introduce the episode. Our guest today is the author of Market Mover, Lessons from a Decade of Change at NASDAQ. And believe me, he's a good person to talk about this since he's also the former CEO of NASDAQ. Let that sink in for a moment. The CEO of NASDAQ on Limit Up. What an age we live in. Now he's a managing partner at Cornerstone Investment Capital and a chairman of Virtue Financial. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is none other than Bob Greifeld. He's a man who also recently remarked, will remember WeWork as when the unicorn bubble first burst. So he can play on my team any day. Because as listeners might be aware, I've never been a big fan of WeWork, to be honest. Because I don't like working with randos, and I like my water without cucumbers, thank you very much. Anyway, this is going to be maybe one of our biggest interviews. So I'm just going to let Bob and Jeff get to it after a quick in-studio market reaction. GDP and the Fed announcement were both today. Uh, unemployment's tomorrow, but uh, GDP came in at 1.9, and the market did basically nothing. Uh, Powell said that there'd be no more raises unless inflation seriously shoots up, but there's not any of those good cuts either. Gold bounced around a little bit, but uh, honestly, I was sort of surprised by that. I frankly wish I had more to add, but... Uh, I've actually been laid up the last couple of days with a lower back injury that I sustained while trying to put my crated dog into a car. And uh, that dog is actually a pug. But to my credit, Rodney is a very big pug, over 20 pounds. And uh, I was also carrying some other bulky things and trying to open the door to my garage at the same time. Um, who am I kidding? There's no excuse here that doesn't make me look like an absolute weakling. But uh, the doctor did give me a week's worth of good anti-inflammatories and muscle relaxants. So now I'm just going to sit back myself and really relax and enjoy today's interview between our very own Jeff Carter and former NASDAQ CEO Robert Greifeld. Hope you enjoy it too. Welcome everybody to another edition of Top Step Traders Limit Up Podcast. My name is Jeff Carter. I blog at Points and Figures and you can find me on Twitter at Points and Figures. Today, uh, we welcome Robert Greifeld. He is the former NASDAQ CEO He's author of a book called Market Mover, Lessons from a Decade of Change at NASDAQ, which we'll get into in the podcast. Uh, Robert led a lot of change, and uh, I'm sure that'll be very interesting. He's now the managing partner of Cornerstone Investment Capital and chairman of the board of Virtue Financial, one of the largest um, trading operations on Wall Street. And they actually, they actually have roots in Chicago from get-go. Welcome to the program, Robert. Uh, I go by Bob. If Bob, you that's fine. That's fine. Sure. Glad to be here today. Yeah, yeah. So let's start with, uh, let's just go like progressive. So you were chairman of the NASDAQ in a very kind of point of inflection in our industry because it had always been manual for years with a specialist system and things like that. Talk about, like, why did you decide to become uh, the CEO of NASDAQ? Yeah, well, I would say you bring up a great point. Uh, you know, I became CEO in 2003, and at that time, floor-based trading was still 
a dominant way of transacting business. So I came from a technology background and certainly saw where the trend lines had to go, where computers could, in fact, replace a lot of the floor-based activity, rendering the floor. At this stage, when you look at a lot of floors, they're really just showcases or event spaces, uh, that kind of thing. So I, I was fortunate to come to NASDAQ, and uh, I came to NASDAQ in that I was a very unusual, unique hire in the exchange space back in 2003. I remember this. This was kind of, it was different. It was an out-of-the-box hire. Yeah, and it was out-of-the-box, I think, driven by the fact that NASDAQ was part of the NASD and wanted to separate from the NASD, demutualize, and then become for-profit and go public. And as part of that thought, they'd taken an investment capital from a PE firm out of the Valley called Hellman and Freeman. And they recognized early on that one, this was a technology company and that somebody coming from that background was a good thing. And two is the culture was obviously built around being part of the regulator. So to inject some entrepreneurial blood into there was a good thing. So I fit the view of the bill going forward, but certainly not how it changes had been in the past. That's interesting. Um, I didn't realize they had a private equity uh, investment. So I was at CME and we kind of started down the path to demutualization around 97. And then it, it took us to 2000 to accomplish it because we had the member uh, run structure, which was different than NASDAQ. And then we IPO'd in 02, finally. So I think we IPO'd on the NASDAQ. No, first with, oh, uh, first with the, well, yes, but then I were, I became friends with Craig, uh, Craig and yeah, Craig Donahue and then Terry, and we convinced we convinced them to move their listing from Nazi to Nasdaq, so they're on Nasdaq today, and I'm proud, proud that they are. I think it's I think what's interesting, like through the '90s with that whole internet buildup, um, the tech companies went to the Nasdaq in droves. And, and yes. it kind of did not go to the NYSE. It was a more traditional marketplace. Yeah. So when I came there and I covered this in the book in 03, uh, we were living in the aftermath of the bursting of the dot-com bubble. So in 2003, and I asked this question to people, I say, how many IPOs do you think we did in 2003? And people come up with different guesses, but they never guessed zero. So it was basically zero. So we were definitely... You know, between the coming change in the floor-based trading and the fact that there were no IPOs, it was an interesting time to start. Oh, yeah, I, you know, I had forgotten that the internet burst really did impact your business. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because you had no control over it. It's just you had a lot of those stocks on your exchange. And um, when they blew up, you know, it, it impacts your business, right? Well, well, what happened was we kind of had a perfect storm in that one, the listing business was more abundant, non-existent than more abundant. So we lost that revenue. Plus then the trading volume was smaller. So the pie was shrinking. And probably most importantly, uh, there was a regulation called Reg ATS introduced that allowed the formation of ECNs, which I had founded one. And the ECNs were taking market share every day. So we're losing market share in a smaller market. The rate capture was going down every month and there were no IPOs. So all that lead to me coming in. And I remember I, I, 
I met with the team like weeks before, and I said, you know, I come here, I want to get a daily P&L, and they didn't have such a thing. I came there the first day, and they did a wonderful job putting together, and so we're losing about $250,000 per day, which nobody really had focused on. And I said, well, I have to give compliments to the team because this is a good piece of reporting. And I found out at the fact, since you know, one of the benefits of being overstaffed is we didn't have any systems, but they had about 50 people putting the information together manually every day. Wow. So, uh, so we had enough people laying around, uh, sitting around to be able to produce a great report. Obviously, we automated it over time, but you know, it was an important management tool. It's interesting that you say that. So uh, Craig Donahue is a mutual friend of both of ours. When he took over the OCC, it was kind of, it wasn't as in desperate straits like, like that, where, you know, you literally came onto a boat with a lot of holes in it. I mean, and not small holes, right? Um, Craig had to modernize the OCC. It was the same thing. They had a staff people just laying around where the culture hadn't changed in, you know, eons. What did you do like early on to change the culture of the NASDAQ to a more entrepreneurial culture from the culture that it was? So I knew that people thought that we were going to enter into a grand debate in terms of what the future should look like. Right. And I cover it in the book, uh, you know, before eight o'clock on the first day, I fired, you know, three of my direct reports. So that obviously rippled through the organization. They knew that I wasn't there to get into a consensus-driven approach, right? We were basically going to impose a new culture. If this was not for you, I said, you know, you know, move on, right? You know, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but just go somewhere else. And you know, a lot of people chose to go back to the NASD. They were hiring at, at the time, and you know, I was fine with that. Like I said, it wasn't a value judgment that they were lesser people, but we were obviously changing the culture. We're going to weigh, measure, and count everything. We had to be competitive. It was going to be a pure meritocracy. And the sooner you get that message across, the better. And what I say in the book is, you know, my dominant thought in the first number of months was I got here six months too late because, you know, I didn't come there and market share started going up. It kept going down for a while. And then all of a sudden there wasn't more trading volume. Trading volume kept going down. And because I got there, there weren't IPOs. So, you know, we, you know, there was no improvement in the trend line in my first three months in those kind of key metrics. So, uh, but, you know, I knew what we had to do and, you know, we just got on it. And then, you know, the environment got more conducive for us and kind of a mark in the road was when we won the Google IPO and they came public. That was, when I think back, I mean, that was kind of a, okay, we're out of that dot-com bubble, you know. So the aftermath of dot-com bubble in many ways lasted until, Google came out, and then we had more of a tailwind. So we were getting more competitive going into 2004, 2005, and plus, you know, the macro forces were more in our favor. So it got, it definitely got easier. Yeah, interesting. And so, just could you frame it this way? Like before 2003, Nasdaq was more run like a public utility, and you guys had to get lean and mean and sort of all of a sudden compete for market share in a different way and actually generate a profit where it's more like a business, right? At that point. Is that fair to say? That's very fair to say. NASDAQ before 03 would take excess before it demutualized 
you know, excess fees would basically be rebated back to the members, not dissimilar to, yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, we did so, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not dissimilar. So it was a whole uh, different mindset. But, you know, what I talk about in the book, which is, you know, to me interesting, and it really didn't dawn on me till I was writing the book, is when I came to NASDAQ to give them credit, you know, they had a mainframe system, it was a battleship, and they would up, they would update it once a year. But when they updated it, it worked, right? Now, our competitors were little PT boats, and they would update their creaky, uh, creaky Unix systems once a week. They would break, and I noticed intimately because I started VCN, they'd break and they reboot it and restart, and no harm, no foul. So NASDAQ, I clearly directed them to be more like the upstarts, right? So we had to get to a rapid deployment environment. The customers wanted that, and every time you did something positive and it worked, you'd have seen an increase in market share. So we lived through that. We got very good at that. And really, it was a technology led company. But in the full arc of the story, you know, uh, I think we did got to go uh, not full circle, but came back because when I had to analyze what we did wrong at Facebook, it was clearly a culture that I had established where we wanted to be in this uh, fail fast, fail early situation we wanted to be rapid deployment but the world had changed right the ecn wars were pretty much over and the customers needed stability so post facebook we somewhat came back to where we were from a a, a methodical engineering culture where we did less releases but for for the testing and we made sure that we were just doing things that customers needed and not so much just because we could do it from a technical point of view so yeah, it was a wide arc. So you know what we did in '03 was wrong for '03, uh, but then the world changed, and you can certainly overdo it. So as far as like the broader industry, because you know Nasdaq's really a center. When you switched from the old way of doing business to the new way, the rapid deployment and stuff, what knock-on effects down in the industry happened? Who went out of business? Who was able to start up a business? How did it change the way people competed in your industry? Well, I, I would say this, you know, certainly in the exchange ECN ATS space, you know, it was just so hyper competitive and we were always getting on the bleeding edge of technology. It was a, a big thing when we broke the millisecond barrier with response, you know, response. So remember the millisecond was this, uh, uh, goal and then you know we're so far past that uh, right now where we have you know basically people writing in hardware because every you know nanosecond matters so and I use that to grow Nasdaq's business I said we're on touch such the tip of the spear here in the U.S. equity marketplace we can sell this to the rest of the world what the learnings we have here and we built a very successful and, and large business uh, doing that. But what you saw from that competitive action uh, to get to the customers is you had over 90% reduction in the cost to transact on the market. So that allowed investors to basically come in and out of the market when they wanted. And when I see Schwab and uh, the others going to zero commission, that kind of seems to be the end state of the efficiency that you know we helped introduce into the markets and certainly electronics help introduce into the markets. Yeah, that's yeah, that's interesting. Um because I remember being on the board of CME and every time we 
invested in technology and built more headroom for like just the e-mini, it filled up immediately. And I mean, there was like almost no limit. It was, it was like a straight up curve, you know, it was vertical. And uh, we hit, I remember at one point it was 27 trades per second. And we were like, wow, this is great. And then all of a sudden we were at 35, <laughs> you know, and, and now it's, I mean, faster than the blink of an eye. It's absolutely insane. That's for sure. Um, so when you took over, what was the enterprise value of NASDAQ? Do you remember? It was, yeah, it was around 500 million. 500 million. And when yeah. you left, when you left, it was worth over 11 billion. I don't know what it's worth yeah. today, stock price. It was, yeah, it was more like 12 when I left as chairman, but now we're probably 14 or 15. So, uh, we've, we've done not as well as a CME, but quite, quite well. Different market though, different regulator, totally different competitive oh, yeah. uh, oh, yeah. thing. Um, that's always sort of fascinating to me is like CME, I mean, for lack of a, it's, it's a flimsy way to say it is they kind of got a monopoly. You don't have that on the SEC side. No. And, and the source of that is that we have mutualized clearing, right? So right, we didn't own our clearing. So DTC does the clearing and that allows the exchanges and the ECNs to share that resource, which gives you easy entry. But it means you're basically at a shootout in the OK Corral every month. <laughs> yeah, right? right. Exactly. So, so you change your pricing in a month, it'll have impact on your market share. So you're, you know, it's a great environment to be a customer, and uh, you really have to continue to one drive your costs lower and achieve scale. So your per unit cost comes lower, and you can pass that on to the customer. Right. And so, just uh, for people that are sort of listening, uh, mutually cleared organization means I can buy on NASDAQ, I can sell on some ECN and the trades offset where at CME, you have to go through one. I can't buy Euro dollars at CME and lay them off in London and have it clear. I have to do it on the exchange, same exchange. As you're saying this, I'm getting so jealous again. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so how do you, how do you attract liquidity providers to make really tight spreads? Because they, that becomes the cost of trade and not necessarily the commission and other things. Yeah. So you would pay a rebate, right? So how do you attract liquidity providers? You pay them providing, for providing liquidity. And then you obviously have to charge on the removal. And then, you know, that was our predominant market model, but then, you know, we owned a bunch of exchanges, so our Boston exchange would be where kind of the inverse, where we would, you know, pay for the uh, removers. So, yeah, you know, it was really the segmentation of the market. You know, you went through the period of time where it was an absolute price war; everything was going lower, and then it got to a point where that was not possible. So then you say, okay, try to understand the particular customer base what segment they're in and is that worth giving them additional incentive because you know that it was a zero sum game. So if you gave them additional incentive then somebody else would be uh, you know, disadvantaged. So you, you have to play that. And we were probably some of the early users of big data trying to understand, you know, what the push and the pull was. Interesting. And, and like on the buy side of the market and the sell side of the market for equities, what did you have to do to entice each side to come in 
where it was a different sort of conversation. Can you explain like the differences so people understand that? I mean, this is a tricky balance, right? Compared to other types of marketplaces that are out there. You know, what's interesting, not directly answering your question, but somewhat. So what we'd hear from the buy side customers was that in our essential market structure, it was price time. So if you were the, uh, at the same price, right, you're willing to bid $100 for this stock and somebody else was willing to bid 100 you'd rank them by who got there first, you know, hard stop. So price was first, right? If you're at $99, you'd never be at the top of the queue. But if you're both at 100 then you're equal in the queue and then we rank it by time. So uh, the buy side would say, well, that's, you know, we got size. We're the big players and you're advantaging the smaller traders like, like you, you did back in the day. I said, okay, let's, let's try a market model. And I, I loved it uh, called price size. So if you're in at the same price, uh, who's got more? If you're a thousand shares and I'm 10,000, I go ahead of you, even though you came in a minute before me. And so the buy side absolutely loved us. The uh, money managers, they just were absolutely loved the concept. And, you know, we presented it and people would cheer and we'd be happy and you'd feel smart and brilliant. And then, you know, we launched it, uh, a price size market. And uh, nobody really came to the party. So the buy <laughs> side, you know, so it was one of these, one of these things that, you know, just, just, you know, on paper, it was great. But the buy side wasn't in enough control of their order flow or, you know, they weren't as motivated as they would say in a, in a meeting there. So I, I still think that market structures, you can tell I'm holding on to the concept because it was mine back in the day and it's great to fail like this. Uh, I still think the concept has validity uh, there, but, you know, with price size, you obviously speed uh, matters with price time. I mean, so speed matters and that was the dominant model. And I, as I, mentioned is we talked to different customers you tried to please every one of them it was really impossible to do it within one exchange license there we that's where you saw you know we had uh you know the old boston stock exchange license the old philly license and we came up with different models there beyond core nasdaq to please uh different people yeah yeah interesting and yeah i talked to these guys setting up a new exchange and they decided to use a fifo model first in, first out, didn't matter. And I can remember launching contracts at CME where we would do the same thing. You'd go talk to the community and they would say, we want this and this and this and this. And you'd spend all this money, you know, getting the regulatory and everything and getting the market makers lined up and you'd launch it and then nobody would show up to trade. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's oh not a great God. feeling. <laughs> no. Not at all. So, so why did you decide, decide to leave NASDAQ? Because a lot of times, you know, exchange people just kind of stay there, you know? I mean, Duffy's been chairman of the Merck since, I think, 2003. Maybe. I, I don't think so. But he's certainly been there a very, very long time. So, but, the, you know, everybody makes their own decisions in life. So I have a couple th thoughts on that. One, I, I love my time at NASDAQ Dealey. Uh, but I recognize that NASDAQ, uh, you could never control your own schedule. The schedule controlled you, right? That was a function of the job. And it was with you seven by 24. And in this virtual world, that was 
easy to do it. So that was a, a factor, and it's a factor because one, you know, I became an empty nester. The kids graduated <laughs> uh, and got jobs and were launched, and we're all ecstatic about that. But then, you know, my wife's alone a lot more, so that was one factor. Two is, and I mentioned this in the book, is you know, when the kids are young. They're just there, right? They follow your schedule, but now they have their own lives and you get to start conforming to them a little bit, right? Because they, they get less weeks off. So I knew that that was a reality that was coming. But I think also very importantly is that in 03 and through a long period of time, I certainly, I think I added unique uh, contributions to the organization. Now, as we went forward, uh, you know, 2012, 15, 14, 15, the management team was so strong and I was so proud and they had developed so well. And clearly I was less critical then than I was, uh, you know, in, in the past. So that gave me an opportunity and comfort. And Adina, I had trained for, you know, over a decade. She was more than ready to step on. There was no reason for me to do that. And, you know, the third component is, you know, before I went to NASDAQ, I assumed I was going to go back to my entrepreneurial roots. So I basically took a 14-year detour. So, you know, I, I wanted to get back into, you know, smaller startup-y things where, you know, I could bring, you know, a lot to the table from a, not a management point of view, my CEO days were done, but really, you know, from as a, uh, you know, governance and director kind of position. So, you know, so, uh, you know, all three things came uh, together. There's no one one thing, but clearly, you know, I, I knew it was the right time. Then I, I, yeah, I also talk about, you know, my, one of the things I always said to people is once you are competent, you have to battle complacency, right? And you see it all the time. And complacency is not like you go from 100% to 60%, but you, you go from 100% to 92%. Right, so the eight percent is not visible all the time, but I also had a clear view that the difference between success and failure were two sides of a very thin coin. Right, so nobody is preordained to succeed, nobody is preordained to fail, but you need a hundred percent to succeed. So if you're somewhat complacent, you're in ninety-two percent, then that's an issue. And you know, I said, okay, Bob, the shareholder, right? because I accumulated a lot of shares through the years and hadn't sold any, says, okay, Bob, the CEO, maybe he's at 92% or 94, 95, 97, right? Maybe I was at 97%, but you're not at 100%. That's not right, right? So you've got to make sure you get there. So it all came together. It was definitely the right decision. And, you know, I'm so proud of what the Adina and the team has done since I've left. We continue to execute well, and, uh, you know, it's just a wonderful thing to see. Yeah, they they do do a great job. Um, I love the startupy thing. I I uh, I'm a venture capitalist, so I invest in seed stage B two B early fintech startups. Right? I, I mean, isn't that a lot of fun? Oh my god, it's so fun working with the people, and it's just you know you, you're solving very very different problems, and you know it, it's just yeah, it's really fun, risky but fun. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, well, you know, I. I I, I talk in the book that, you know, we, we started up our, like our internal venture arm. And I said, you know, we're going to, I said, we're not going to have the percentage of an NBA free throw shooter, but I'd like to be like a, a all-star baseball player and hit mm -hmm. 300. 
Yeah. I, that yeah, that'd thing. be very good, actually. I mean. Yeah, very good. Well, and, and the way we were doing it, that was realistic. And just in the out, outside market, that's And do they, they still have that venture arm. So what's interesting about like, so what's interesting about corporate venture is unless the corporation is really committed to it, it can go away. And what's interesting about you started a venture arm, new management came out of, you know, the culture that you built, but still new management comes in, new kind of managers with different views and they kept their venture arm, which is interesting as opposed to like CME started it up and abandoned it. Interesting. And so we, I, I see that, you know, as an independent venture capitalist with a fund, I see that constantly like corporate venture will come into a deal and then all of a sudden the corporation management changes and it's like, what does this entrepreneur do? So I hear you. So why did you decide to do corporate venture? Because a lot of people, you know, CEOs are avoid it. Well, so with two, two aspects to it, one is we had internal venture where we set up the managers where if, if they got approved by the venture, you know, basically council, then uh, the money did not count against their internal operating budget. Oh, wow. That's a good idea. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Oh, that's the only way to prime the pump. So yeah, we had built the culture, uh, you know, starting back in 03 where, you know, I so said we weigh, measure and count everything. And we had a fundamental belief that scale and efficiency would matter because transaction costs were going to go near near zero. Uh, so in that environment, you don't invent the iPad. So I had to have a parallel universe where, you know, failure happened. Uh, the money was somewhat free, not WeWork's level free, but uh, free. And then people come up with different concepts. And the concepts had to be approved, so you gave up your sovereignty as the business head, but then you get a free lunch in the funding. So that proved to be, you know, very very successful. How did I want to stop you really quick? Because in corporations, a lot of times failure isn't tolerated. Yeah, and it, well, it's also it could be tolerated, but then the person comes out of it as damaged goods, right? Right, exactly. It ruins their career, so they're afraid to take the risk. Yeah, and I remember being in a meeting where Jack Will said that if you tried something like that and you failed, then you know he thought you would move on to you know the company. And I said, well, I don't want to. How am I going to get my best managers to do that? So you know we had to create the right culture around that, and you know it was going to be very hard to do inside. It, we wanted to stay inside, but really inside. That's why you know we set up a separate funding source, a separate view of things, like in the beginning. You know, you're not paying attention to financial metrics. You're talking about operating metrics, customer acceptance metrics uh-huh. became important. So, so that's how that's how you measured it based on those types of metrics. Not are we investing in companies at a X valuation and they're raising money at you know five. Well, we had from- that. We we had we had a, an external venture arm, which I think Adina's done a great job with. But that was you know, and maybe CME did this. I'm not sure, but uh, I saw a lot of corporate arms, venture arms, just doing kind of random, you know, venture investing. So this had to be a clear path to benefiting our business. So it was a narrow focus external venture arm. So we're not there. You know, we could see a hot steaming deal and believe that this thing's going to take over the world. But if it didn't contribute to the mothership, then, you know, that was left to you folks to do. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. 
so I'm a big fan, you know, I'm a University of Chicago MBA, so I'm a huge fan of efficient markets. I think the regulators in the U.S. are generally pretty good, although the SEC can be a little heavy-handed at times. As you see things develop, let's say in the crypto space, kind of what are your views on how that's evolving and what the regulators should be or should not be doing in that space? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, I am a massive believer in uh, stable coin back, you know, cryptocurrency, uh, you know, because if we're going to use it for something functional, I don't want to be taking, you know, as I'm buying my groceries with uh, some type of cryptocurrency, I don't want to be booking the trading risk associated with it. I want it, right? So we got to separate those two things out. It doesn't belong there. Now, if you want to just be speculating on Bitcoin, that's, you know, that, that's fine, but it's a different thing. Yes, I, I, I focus on the practical uses of the currency, and I think it has to be based on some sort of stable coin. And I also would make a comment that, you know, in the, in the U.S., we get drawn to the speculation of it because I think we miss the fundamental uh, friction in the system when you have to go across currency, right? So U.S., you know, we're uniquely, we think U.S. dollars, but most of the people in the rest of the world have to think in multiple currencies, and they know there's, you know, friction and transaction costs associated with that. So to the extent that cryptocurrencies can dramatically remove that friction, I think that, you know, that's a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, very interesting. And I appreciate the comment on stable coins. One of the things that sort of bugs me is you could have an arbitrage between a currency and a fiat, which was yeah. essentially a stable coin. I mean... Yeah, the stable coins probably... I think there still would be one, but I think stable coins tend to be back, will be back to multiple currencies, but still. Uh, but yeah. Do you think the SEC's on the right track with crypto? Should they be more light-handed with it? Uh, you know, I in the actions I've seen, I would say it would be hard to be uh, light-handed today, right? I think we're going through the Wild West period of time. Yes, we, we need are. To, yeah, so in the Wild West, to have a cop on the beat is a, uh, a good thing. And then as we sort it out and sort out its true value proposition, uh, I think it's real. Now, well, what cryptocurrency is, you know, where its real competitor is, you know, we rarely use cash today, right? So clearly cash is obsolete. It's like insane to be walking around with paper money these days. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Nordics. And obviously, uh, that is the most uh, electronic market there is. Nobody has cash there. So they're decades ahead of that. Now, what you run into as you try to get rid of the paper cash is you have a political issue because obviously it's more important uh, to people the lower you go down the socioeconomic uh, scale. So that's going to, you know, that's going to slow adoption in some some way. It's it's yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're invested in a company based out of Ireland that works with the unbanked they happen to be immigrants that have good credit it's just because of aml kyc in a certain country they can't open up a bank account so they wind up walking around with wads of cash because they can't get a debit card they can't get a credit card right 
It's really, yeah, it's fascinating. It is interesting. Yeah. So the market, you know, you know, you've got a bunch it's of tech trillions. heads in the room. Yeah. Yeah. You get tech heads in the room thinking about the future, but then the future can leave certain people behind. So that that's going to slow the adoption here. But clearly, I mean, outside of that, paper money is, you know, incredibly obsolete technology. It has to be replaced. Most of us, you and I, don't use paper money today. So then it's a, it's, you know, we're living in a digital world with respect to our money. But the question is, what's the friction cost associated with that? And does a cryptocurrency then, you know, reduce that friction in some substantial way? Interesting. And if I think really broadly about this, the fanboys that initially started that I would hear pitches on is, you know, there will be no NASDAQ in an all crypto place. There will be no CME. It's just going to be a decentralized thing. And I don't buy that argument, but I see that argument. I don't even really see it. Uh, so let's forget the philosophical. The technical issues is this, right? You know, the the blockchain does six trades a second or something like that. Some ridiculously low number, right? Yeah, right, right now an equity system can do, you know, a million transactions a second, right? And so, uh, and CME, I'm sure, is in that same, yeah, their range. Right? So those, you know, even if it is the better solution, the technology, nothing about, you know, good or bad, the technology to allow the blockchain to support that is literally i mean decades away right even even with quantum computing which you know you just had this thing that google did that was kind of a great leap forward in quantum computing but that's going to benefit the existing players as well as the upstart technology i mean no doubt no doubt so that will come so you know i i think when you look at uh the blockchain in financial services you have a lot of uh, instruments that trade by appointment in low value, in low volume, and that is a perfect thing. So, you know, between that and clearing, you know, there's a rich field for the blockchain people to, you know, succeed in, and they and they should do that. I think that's a great way to put it: is trade by appointment, because uh, the way I've always talked about it and thought about it is like, don't go after, you know, stocks because they're already liquid; they're they're already digital. You know, it's the it's the uh, you know non-listed but public REITs or some of these dark markets where the spreads are super wide. You know, um, corporate bonds is another one I could think about, and they do trade by appointment. And there's a lot of layers of distribution inside the market that uh, create inefficiencies. So, I agree. I agree. Yeah, we're not. We are not moving physical certificates uh, anymore in the equity world. That's for sure. We are. We are not. <laughs> no, no, no. no they, they, they've been digitized a long time ago. Yeah. So, you wrote you wrote an article about WeWork recently, and you lived through. You picked up the net. What's interesting is you picked up the Nasdaq at the end of that dot com bubble. I'm curious about your thoughts about kind of the blow up of WeWork and how that's going to affect the overall markets. Well, I think it's affected it in terms of if you want to come public today and you don't have a clear path to profitability, you're going to have a difficult time getting out. Right. So I think we were getting in a period of time where more stories were being told. So you're not going to just have a story now. So, you know, we might have edged close to the dot-com bubble, but now with WeWorks, we were getting, you know, too close to the sun. 
So I think WeWorks was the outlier, but it did uh, that outlier did change somewhat the psychology of, of of the marketplace. Yeah, how about the existing kind of people that IPO'd with the story? Let's say uh, Tesla, they don't make money, or some of these other ones. Do you think they have a corresponding decrease in valuation because of this, or? Or not? No, I, I think WeWorks is an outlier, and, and Tesla did make a lot of money last quarter. Yeah, last quarter, right? Yeah, and so they always had, to me, a path to profitability there because you could, you know, people could understand the automotive business and also understand that when they're fully deployed, they have less parts than an internal combustion engine, and you know, they should get economies of scale. So that that's a different. Uh, a case in point there. So I think we we worked on the outlier, but I think an important point to recognize is how does something go from forty seven to seven? And, you know, <laughs> yeah. People question seven, so I, I would make it clear that private markets are different than public markets, right? So private market is essentially a bilateral, and one of the two parties could be wrong on the valuation. Public markets, we have open access standards. Everybody's to come together. You have the benefit of the wisdom of the crowds to discover uh, the, the price. So obviously, public markets can be wrong, uh, but less likely to be wrong than a private market. So you saw that valuation mismatch. The private market value was just wrong right, in some fundamental way there. So you always run you know, that, that, that risk. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I used to do TV hits once in a while for CME back in the day. You know, you'd be on all these different business channels. And I remember I was on Bloomberg once and this had to be January of 01. And she said, whoever it was asked me, where's the NASDAQ going? And it was around, it was close to the high. And I had looked at a chart and I said, I think it's going to trade 1500. And she's (laughs) like, 1500, there's no chance it's going to trade. And, and I said, no, these companies are, they don't have any profits. It's all gas. It's all, you know, hocus pocus, dominocus. And then that day, the Fed cut rates. I think NASDAQ hit its all-time high of whatever it was at the time, 5,300 or something. And then in March, the meltdown started and it went to 1,500. So I, you, well, you were right I, on that. I was right. I was right. But boy, you couldn't short it because <laughs> I, mean, I would have been insolvent. <laughs> yeah, I know. You would have been. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have made it to the promise. Line. Oh, no. No chance. No. The train would have hit me so hard. I would have just been blown to smithereens. So Yeah. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Really funny. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, you know, in valuation. I mean, one of the things we do with entrepreneurs when we talk to them, if they hit us up with a big valuation, we'll say, how married are you to this? Did somebody coach you? Do you want to really talk about corporate finance as a strategy? And this is what it really means to hit these different marks. Um, And if they're not willing to have that conversation, of course, we don't do the deal. But I think it'll be interesting. Like the last two checks that we've written, we've had very candid kind of talks with entrepreneurs about valuation and they they didn't push back and and we're, we've feel like we valued their companies fairly and it is a bilateral transaction um and we'll see how it works out but i think for the broader industry these kind of late round you know it was almost too much money going into too few companies as well right because there was so no, much no, money no. raised and so the supply of capital that came in looking to find something 
Um, and there were just not enough companies to invest in. So, you know, supply and demand got way out of whack. Well, and that imbalance hasn't fundamentally changed, right? So WeWorks might have changed the psychology, but you still have a lot of investment dollars out there looking. And then when you're living in a low growth world and you run into a company that uh, is growing and proclaims to be able to grow forever, then, you know, you will have some distortions in value. Yeah, that and, and I think underlying that, like the Fed policy of QE cheapened, you know, the cost of money, it kind of over time changed risk reward preferences where the cost of capital in the private markets was cheaper than the public market, which is kind of weird, you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of weird. So if you were a trader today starting out, what kind of advice would you give somebody like that? Well, one, you know, I'm chairman of Virtue, so we're, uh, you know, obviously a trading firm. So the infrastructure associated with trading and the technology is massive. So when you say a trader, if you're a local or individual, I think it's just hard, if not impossible, to compete uh, with that, right? So with, with scale comes massive efficiencies, and uh, Vinny Viola, um, the founder of Virtu had a great line. He says, you know, it all shows up in the bid offer spread. So, you know, when you have these massive scale and massive efficiencies, you can maintain or maintain a tighter bid offer spread. So the individual trader, you know, I think is a, is a hard deal. On the other side, though, I think when I see the rise of passive investing, uh, I think as it continues to grow, it creates increased opportunity an active investor, right? Because passive, you know, passive investing obviously follows the rules, and those rules, you know, can be uh, dumb rules at, at a time. And if I'm able to trade without rules, you know, uh, with respect to my mandate, you know, that gives me a tremendous opportunity. And uh, and you get more of the money, you know, passive uh, or dumb or uninformed than the guy who's not bound by that is going to have a great opportunity. What sort of characteristics of a market or a stock or if you were a, a rookie trader coming in, would you absolutely want to have in there to give you the best chance of success? I always believe that if you have basically a, you know, electronic order book market that's priced time and it's visible, you have the best chance, right? You have a lot of market structures that have inbuilt capabilities that favor some, right? So you have to understand how that market is put together. If there are, you know, X percent of retail, uh, retail flows going to X percent of traders associated members of that exchange, you need to know that. You have to either be on the inside of that, right, and provide the benefit of that market structure or not participate, right? So the extent the market is open, democratic, fair access to all, then I, I would look for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. It's been it's a my pleasure. pretty, pretty great conversation. Um, great getting to know you. You're author of the book, Market Mover, Lessons from a Decade of Change at NASDAQ. I encourage people to pick it up and buy it because I think you'll learn a lot about just business there. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate your time. So, Thank you, and let's hope it doesn't snow in Chicago today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how about it? All right, have a great one. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. 
Traders, thank you for making it to the last 120 seconds of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. We'd like to thank Robert Greifeld again for stopping by, and we'd like to thank you, the listener, for hanging out with us. And by the way, since we had established that we're friends, I thought it might be cool to ask you a favor. I thought maybe, just maybe, you could, I don't know, subscribe this podcast and rate it wherever you're consuming podcasts. There's thousands of you listening out there, according to my spreadsheets, so it would be great if you told us how you felt about the show or what you would like to see more of. And since we're friends and all, you know, don't be a dick, all right? However, if you must be, uh, be sure to leave those comments on the blog or contact me directly at jack at topsteptrader.com. Uh, what else? Uh, yes, remember to follow us at Top Step Trader on Instagram and also join our private, exclusive Top Step Trader Facebook community. We will, of course, accept you there unless you totally suck. So don't suck. And you know what? I think that's some great advice to end the show with. Don't suck. In trading, in life, in anything that you do, just uh, don't suck, people. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. As always, trade well and namaste. This episode produced by Dante32. Futures and Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.